baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello, welcome to Space Boffins, proudly stretching the definition of monthly podcast since 2011. It's our new logo. <laughs> new, not logo. What's the What's the phrase? Not logo. Uh, um, is it a brand? No, new, no. New brand, it's tagline. Um, tagline. That's sort it. New like tagline. That, is it? Or, or, no, tagline. Uh, no, tagline's sort of written, isn't it? No, I think tagline's you fine. You think tagline? Yeah. Okay. Or a new jingle. <laughs> We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists, and I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. It is worth the wait, though, with two big interviews, actually, to start the new year. Well, we can't really call it the new year now that we're in February, but it's it's sort of new for... To continue the new our, year. For our listeners, <laughs> yeah. To continue the new year. Yeah. In a moment, you're going to hear a great conversation with astronaut, NASA astronaut, Mike Massimino, chatting about what Apollo meant to him, the return to the moon and Hubble. And then, in a first for Space Boffins, the UK Government Science Minister, George Freeman, on launch, astronauts and the legacy of Apollo. My brothers were seven and eight years older. The family was electrified. The country was electrified. I was two, but I felt the kind of surge of electromagnetic emotional energy. And I think another generation will have the same thing when uh, the Rosalind Franklin rover sends back those signals. Mike Massimino, though, he's the veteran of two missions to the Hubble Space Telescope, which included four spacewalks. Mike Massimino's reflection uh, in the aft shroud of the Hubble Space Telescope uh, as he uh, prepares to uh, open the doors, uh, protective doors over the fixed head star trackers and the rate sensor units. I think I should apologise for that clip because it makes it sound really boring, but it's actually awesome. <laughs> Mike Massimino is reflected in Hubble. Yeah, that's one of those things actually when maybe audio doesn't maybe really doesn't come out. No, those, so those NASA <laughs> commentaries. Maybe visuals I, do work a little I, bit I, I went through that mission and uh, STS-135 and it's all a bit like that. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't zing. But the visuals are stunning. So yeah. take our word for it. <laughs> good, good. We will. Well, let's uh, let's get on to Mike now. We, we've interviewed him before. This interview, oh, well, you're in for a treat. That's all I can say. He's the first person, by the way, to tweet from space. And since retiring from that's that's not all he's known for, though, no, by it's, the way. It's, <laughs> what? It's the first thing on his website. <laughs> oh, really? This first that's sentence. That's really weird. Oh, maybe, first sentence maybe on his website. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose yeah. appeal to the younger, yeah. the younger fans, eh? And since retiring from NASA, he's appeared as a recurring character on the Big Bang Theory, which a lot of people probably will know him from the sort of younger generation. He's written a book. He's hosted TV shows. Um, he's also a professor at Columbia University in New York and senior advisor for space programs at the Intrepid Sea, Air and Space Museum there and that's where we met him yeah we recorded this in november in his office on intrepid uh just ahead of the 50th anniversary of the last man on the moon so we started by talking about the apollo program and what it meant to him my personal connection is that that's what inspired me to want to go to space i was six years old when they landed on the moon the first mission apollo 11 i remember the build-up to that and I idolized those astronauts. I wanted to grow up to be like Neil Armstrong, which really wasn't in the cards. I'm not, I'm not a, a, uh, 
test pilot. I, I don't like heights. And I'm not really the typical thrill-seeking heroic astronaut that you might imagine. But they, they inspired me to have an interest in the space program, which never left me, even though I was doubtful I could ever become an astronaut for most of my life. I always was interested in, in what they were doing and decided, it was really after college, I decided that I wanted to try to make an effort, went back to grad school to be a part of the space program and to apply to be an astronaut. But the Apollo missions is what set it off. And it, it wasn't just the missions themselves and what they accomplished. I think it was the sense of camaraderie and teamwork. I felt what they were doing as a little boy. When I, I remember feeling very clearly, thinking very clearly that uh, even at six years old, that this was the most important thing that has happened in hundreds of years. Back that time, we were learning about the explorers coming to the New World and other things in history. And I felt like what they were doing was the type of thing that 500 years from now, people would look back and say, this was the most significant thing about this time. And I still think that. I still think it's the most significant thing, certainly, that's happened in my lifetime. And I think it's the most significant thing that we'll accomplish in hundreds of years. I don't know when we're going to ever come close to topping what, what they did going to the moon for the first time. And Apollo 17 was the, the last of those missions, very significant. But by that time, interest started to fall off. Still a, a very interesting mission with uh, a friend of mine now, uh, Harrison Schmidt, who I just spoke to last week. He was, you know, he was the first geologist to fly in space for the specific reason to, to analyze and, uh, the geology on the moon and look for certain rocks and that was a very significant mission, of course. And the first time they flew a, a true scientist in space in addition to a test pilot. So that was a breakthrough mission for a few reasons. Isn't that extraordinary that you became an astronaut and one of your friends flew on one of those missions that you were following as a child? Yeah, he wasn't my friend back then. <laughs> He's become my friend since. And it's, kind of, it's really weird, you know, when I think about it. Uh, yeah, you, you're not his stalker, are you? <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, I was at my in-laws' house a few months ago in Atlanta, and the phone rings, and I see Harrison Schmidt on. I go, so I got to take this. It's like, wow, you know, this is really, uh, really quite interesting. But I've gotten to know a lot of the the moonwalkers. I got to know Neil Armstrong a bit. Uh, Alan Bean, who was the fourth person on the moon, became a mentor of mine and a great friend. I miss him very much. He died a few years back. Charlie Duke, who was on Apollo 16, wonderful guy. I've gotten a chance to become friends with him. Uh, John Young uh, was still an astronaut when I was <laughs> when I was first started. So John Young was also on Apollo 16. Was also on Apollo 10 when they flew close to the surface, right before Apollo 11, and first commander of the space shuttle. And and one of the I think the most accomplished astronaut ever is John Young. Was really an interesting guy, a very very good astronaut and pilot, and dedicated his whole life. Never left NASA. Continued to be an active astronaut through his 60s and was still an active astronaut when I showed up at NASA in 1996. So I got to work with him and flying the jet with him several times and got to know him pretty well. So, yeah, it's kind of wacky when these uh, you know, these, these people who are my heroes, Gene Kranz, I'm friends with him. All these people that were my heroes uh, I became friendly with, and those that are left um, still, still I'm in touch with. So, yeah, pretty special. What do you, when you're thinking back to your childhood, what do, what do you feel when that was the last mission? And 17 was the last mission. Were you as excited about Shuttle and, and Skylab? No, I, was, I wasn't. In fact, I, I can't. So in 1972, when that mission occurred, I was 10 years old. I kind of knew it was happening. But I think much like a lot of the country, uh, I kind of moved on a bit. And uh, for me, I think it was personally, I, I never thought I could become an astronaut like Neil Armstrong or 
Harrison Schmidt or any of those guys. I, I, I just didn't think that was possible. And my neighborhood where I grew up, you know, there was no astronauts walking around. There weren't very many, I think, anywhere else either. But I was just like, no, nah, this can't happen. By that point, I was like into sports and trying to do my best in school and my friends and having fun and doing those things. And so the, the space program kind of faded for me for a while. Even though I was interested in math and, and science and studied engineering, I still wasn't thinking about NASA until I became a, a senior in college. I went to see this movie, The Right Stuff, oh. which is based on a book by Tom Wolfe. And I saw the movie and I read the book and that got me thinking again. And, uh, and I started looking into what was going on at that time, which was now the space shuttle program in the mid-1980s. And uh, started th- started realizing that it wasn't just military test pilots and that maybe this is something that I could at least attempt. Not that they would ever pick me, pick me, but at least I could maybe submit an application if I got some more credentials, and that's that's the way that works. So I wasn't, I, 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 I it wasn't that I wasn't excited. It just I never really thought I could ever be a part of it. And then when I got re-inspired with the movie The Right Stuff, seeing that and and the book with it, I started thinking about what might be possible. So I wasn't really that. I guess like by the time Apollo seventeen was going, I wasn't as passionate about it as I was as a six-year-old. Were you intimidated slightly by the test pilots? Because both of us have read the book, seen that film. We know from having interviewed some of the Apollo astronauts ourselves Mm -hmm. that particularly well, you did that with Gene Gene Cernan. They're a terrifying lot. They can be quite intimidating. The worst interview I've ever done was with John Young. (laughs) Really? With John Young? (laughs) Why? What happened? I wanted him to do about being on the moon. And he oh, wanted to talk about computers. <laughs> what did he, yeah, John, he wasn't, yeah, yeah, boy, oh boy. Yeah, so he, uh, yeah, so John, John was great, but I asked, when I was a new astronaut, I was flying with him, and uh, I got to know him. There was this one, he would fly from Houston to ride our simulator, the ver- vertical motion simulator in California, and uh, it was an Ames Research Center in California, and uh yeah, I, I, when, I, when I first got to NASA, you said, was I intimidated? Not, it was really strange. Once I became an astronaut, I felt like I was part of the club or something, and then I could talk to these guys, and they were interested in talking to me. And it was really weird because, well, John was still an active astronaut, but I got to know him. I interviewed twice. I was rejected my first time. So I got to know, I met him that first time that I interviewed, and then I got interviewed again, and and uh, then I was picked. He was the head of the selection board those both of those times, and so uh, he knew who I was, and uh, he, he, was, he didn't stop me from being selected. So I figured, oh, he must kind of like me, I guess. And he did. He was great, you know, and I would seek out advice from him. And one of the first things I did when I got there, we're flying in a T-38, was where our training was. And then once we were qualified to do that, I was qualified as a backseater. I couldn't fly as a pilot in command in the front. So, But John Young was qualified in the front. So I, right after I got my qualification, I said, you know, John, Anytime you need someone in your back seat, I'd love to go. And, and probably about like three days later, he said, oh, Mike, I'm going down to the Cape to check some stuff out. You want to come? I'm like, yes. And he goes, are you clear that day? I go, I don't know. And if I'm not, I will be. You know, so, so I was able to go and do a few different flights with him. And there was this one. After about maybe the third time, maybe this was like the third time I was flying with him, we were spending a whole day going out to Ames Research Center. And he did these flights in one. So it was three flights there and three flights back. So we stopped in El Paso. Las Vegas, and then we go to Moffett Field, California, ride the simulator, and then do that whole thing in reverse and come back in one day. That's a lot of flying, a lot of time. We had to leave really early, got back at night. But I got to spend the whole day with this guy. And I was in the simulator with him, too. I mean, I was by his side the whole, the whole time, pretty much. 
And uh, on the way back, I asked him why. He started telling me. I got him, go, you know, going on stories about what it was like in the early days, and uh, you know what they what they did during selection, some of the, some of the experiments they did with these guys, and what it was like. So a little bit of the notoriety they had, and and then I finally asked him what was it like on the moon, and I was expecting some really interesting uh, answer. And he said to me, he goes, "Well, Mike, the best thing about what he more or less told me is the best thing about it. You could finally go to the bathroom because." Uh, <laughs> You know, when you get, and he goes, you don't know this yet, but when you're in zero gravity, you know, things aren't working like they're supposed to, and you need a little bit of gravity to help with your digestion. We have since learned that, and there are things you can do with supplements and so on to make that a little bit easier. But back then, this was in the early days of the space program, and, and I guess they hadn't figured that all that out yet. So when he got to the moon, he said he finally could, you know, <laughs> Yeah, take I think care we got the pension. <laughs> and I was, you know, I was like, wow, you know, that's really something. But I think that's kind of understated. Of the way those guys, uh, the way those guys were about what they were doing, I think they almost had to be that way. There was an element of the job. If you've seen the, to refer to another space movie, First Man, uh, there's an there's an element of that job that was all about the business of it, not you know, not the financial business that we think of sometimes, but you know, taking care of doing your job, and uh, you couldn't get distracted, and in some ways, you know, you couldn't just just had to really stick to what you were doing. If you didn't, you wouldn't be successful, and uh, it required you to really throw yourself into the job and into the work you were doing. And it wasn't very glamorous at that level. It was a lot of hard work and late nights and rough on the family and all that stuff. But it required that. It really required that you put your your all into it. And and I think that's what they were more concerned with. You know, they were more concerned with the execution of the mission than anything else. And so even, I guess, you know, also the the romance of it too or what, you know, what, what people might think. Um, I think you get a bit overwhelmed by what you, the magnitude of what you're trying to accomplish. So I think that's maybe the way it was for for a lot of those guys. Has it given you uh, an appreciation knowing these people, but also having been an astronaut, also having serviced Hubble? I noticed uh, in the NASA website you're described as a veteran Hubble astronaut. Because that the challenge of going to the moon, and now we're looking at Artemis, because maybe people don't appreciate how difficult this is i think the 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 difficulty with what they were doing and what even what we were doing with the shuttle in some respects not not to downplay what's going on now what they're doing now is extraordinary but what they did with apollo especially they didn't have much help with computers or anything that we have now where automatic systems we had a little bit of that on the shuttle not much but the pilots needed to fly and land the shuttle it was all manual flying and landing but with Apollo, all that stuff going on in the moon and back, they didn't have any computing power at all, really, compared to today's standards. What we have in an antiquated cell phone is more than what they had on board that spaceship. So it required a lot of uh, a lot of training. It was quite dangerous, uh, even the training itself. We, they had crashes with this lunar landing vehicle that they were practicing with. There was a, an ejection that happened with uh, Neil Armstrong was almost killed in that thing before he, before he was assigned, I think, to Apollo 11. It was quite dangerous. It was quite, quite reliant on the training and the abilities of those pilots. Uh, so they didn't have much help in the in the, in in the way of computing. And that was also for the ground team. The ground team who was there to help them at every second, they didn't have much help with computers or technology back then either. I mean, they what they had was much better than what they had ten years earlier back in the nineteen you know seven or fifties, I guess. But compared to what we have now, it's not even it's not even close. So. Like it was a much different way of doing things. And when you consider that, that they were able to accomplish what they did, 
was just extraordinary that they got all the way there and all the way back and, and landed and got off the moon. And, you know, they weren't so sure. I remember hearing them talk about Neil Armstrong and Mike Collins uh, saying as well that they thought uh, the chances of pulling off Apollo 11 100% was about 50-50. I remember Mike Collins saying that he thought that he certainly thought he had a much better chance of coming back alive than those other two guys, Neil and Buzz, because they had the added problem of blasting off from the moon. That was another launch that they had to withstand. That was powered flight. And if the rocket doesn't end, you know, it could end badly or you might not get it to work. But unlike on, on Earth, if you have it, a, you know, it doesn't look like a good day and you can shut down the engine, you don't have that luxury on the moon. Those guys would have been stranded there. So he thought that the, the chances of him pulling it all off was 50-50. Alan Bean, my friend who was on Apollo 12, I learned from him that Apollo 11, Apollo 12, and Apollo 13 were designed as exactly the same mission. So he was training to do exactly what they were going to do on Apollo 11, as were the guys on Apollo 13. The reason was they didn't know if they were going to be successful on Apollo 11. So they thought, all right, maybe we'll be successful, maybe not, but we're not taking any chances. We're going to have all three of these crews train for the exact same flight. And then once Apollo 11 was successful, they had to get a completely new mission planned for Apollo 12, which they didn't have very much time at that point to plan it, but, but they did and, and were successful with that mission as well. But uh, but that's the way they were looking at it. They were to us, I mean, you know, when you see even like with with the Artemis mission, you know, we think, oh, everything's going to go fine, and then, well, no, we're not launching today. You know, that's the way it's perceived by people that it's, you just walk out to the launch pad and you go. And that's the way I thought when I was a kid, seeing those guys on Apollo Eleven. But I think they knew and they did know, and everyone who's affiliated uh, working on that mission knew that it might not work the way we think it's going to work today. And but but it did. How do you feel about Artemis? Do you think we're sort of picking up almost where, you know, when you were 10, Apollo 17, mm-hmm. that was the last mission. Do you feel we're sort of picking up now, going back to the back to the moon? Are you excited about, about that? Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I, I, you know, it was with a couple of delays we've had, and it has been delayed for years, actually, if you look at when they were hoping to launch. But once it went, I, I started getting excited again. Uh, I don't know if I really let myself get excited because I wasn't sure if they were actually going to launch. But once they did, I was like, ah, it's pretty cool. And uh, I, I think what's hopeful about it is that not only do we have a rocket that can get there, but now there's a spacecraft that hopefully will check out. I mean, that's the bigger issue almost. It's really two things. One was the launch vehicle and also the, how that, that spacecraft itself performs. There's no one inside, but they'll be taking data on radiation protection and how well it does. It's going to be up there for quite long. It won't be coming back until December 11th. So it's going to be about 26 days in space. So we'll see how it performs. Uh, that'll be good Good to, to hear about that. Hopefully it's, it'll do well. But the larger picture is going back, not just to land people to look around, but landing and moving from this point forward with the purpose of settling on the moon. Um, the next mission will be I, I would say like a check out of the spacecraft and the scenario of launch and the spacecraft going to the moon. They're going to have four crew members on that one is the plan. I think we should be hearing about who, the, who those people are going to be shortly after they get the the conclusion, the splashdown of the current mission. So for Artemis two, I think they would assign that crew fairly soon after that. I would imagine. I don't know if they're going to do that, but I would imagine that's going to be the case. Uh, and then that crew will do it a lap of the moon and come back. It's, I would look at that as more like another test flight. And then the next mission after that, they're actually going to land, but they're landing 
the plan to land is pretty interesting. It also involves, at, at this point, a SpaceX, I think, that's going to be launching the Starship there. And they have a lander that's going to land on it. So they're going to rendezvous with this thing. And then they're going to land with this commercially provided uh, vehicle and then do some exploring down there, particularly at the south pole of the moon, to look for water. So the reason you're looking for water because you're planning at some point to stay there for a while. And so water is needed, of course, for life, but also for fuel. And if we could find water there, that could be a, a, significant, um, a significant finding. Not just finding it, but what is it like and how can we process it and how can we use it? To use it to keep life, keep people alive, but also to use it as fuel, perhaps, to go further to Mars and, and maybe beyond someday. So it's not just to see that we could do it and, and the, the objectors are different than what it was 50 years ago. Now we're trying to get there. International cooperation is going to be a big thing here and also cooperation with commercial companies. So uh, I think it's a much different model with much different goals. So it's, it is, I think, using what we learned, I, I guess, from, the, from those Apollo missions and, and trying to build on it to, to stay this time. I, I, I think of it much like polar exploration about 100 years ago and people would get to the you know whoever got to the south pole first and and then they kind of just went home and and really we didn't go back in with with a lot of effort again uh to go and explore and stay there until about 50 years later when they people kept going back for visits but to actually set up a research station took about 50 years so i think we're kind of looks like maybe on a similar schedule to setting up a research station a place to explore or look for commercial possibilities on the moon uh, about 50 years later, 50 years after the last mission. John Glenn famously got a second chance to go into space. Mm -hmm. If you were offered a second chance <laughs> to go to the moon, would you take it? I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe. <laughs> <isn't> that, <laughs> I don't know. Isn't that like, you know <laughs> I eh, didn't expect that. You know, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> so I would, I mean, yeah, that would be great. I, to go to the moon, sure, but it's not going to happen. They have, uh, I think I'll know a lot of the people that are going to be going, but, you know, so part of it is like, why worry about something that's not going to happen? <laughs> so uh, I don't see why in the world they would send me uh, to the moon at this point. I haven't been with NASA for eight years, and, and they've got a lot of good people. Yeah, I remember speaking to, uh, to John, one of the things I asked John Young about, if he ever would want to fly, we were at, in El Paso taking a break during one of these flights, and, uh, and I asked him, as we were taking this break, hey, John, do you ever think about flying again? You know, it'd been a long time. I guess his last mission was, I don't know, maybe, maybe 12 or 14 years earlier. So I asked him, and he, goes, and he looked at me, and he goes, no, Mike, it's your turn. It's your turn, Mike. And uh, I'll never forget that. And I, I, I think the same way, you know, that it's a turn for these other people. I had my, my, my opportunity. I'm very happy to get to do what I did. Sure, I'd like to fly on the moon, get to the, go to the moon. Sure, I would, I would not turn that down. So the answer, I guess the answer to your question, yes, but I don't know. Christmas is coming up, but I don't think Santa Claus is giving away moon flights. But certainly, yes. I mean, if I had a chance to go to the moon, I would, I would jump at it, sure. But I don't, I don't think anybody's going to do any asking. But if they do, I'll go. Let me just ask you a couple of questions about Hubble and the James Webb Space Telescope. You were one of the last people to repair Hubble, to touch Hubble. Uh, isn't it fantastic? It's still working. And with the James Webb Space Telescope at the same time, so you've got these two space telescopes working simultaneously, which is really the dream, isn't it? Yeah, get as many as you can. Uh, just because we had Hubble 
it didn't we didn't shut down our earth-based telescopes i mean earth-based telescopes still provide lots of great data and, and imaging and, and information about understanding the universe uh, the the imaging of the black hole uh, that uh, that it came out i guess now uh, a while back here uh, the first one and they found one in our galaxy as well that was done with ground-based telescopes cooperating so i think hubble had something to do with it but but we still we don't think we threw everything away you know we're still making new ones too on on the to use on earth that are very powerful so you didn't throw all those away because you had hubble and you're not gonna throw hubble away just because you have james webb so yeah i think it's a it's a great thing that they're right now they're both working um, what's your feeling now about about Hubble and its longevity? Because there's been talk now of actually repairing it again, or at least yeah. you know having another, you know, keeping it going as long as possible. I'm interested to see how that's going to turn out. Um, now, with uh, I think you're referring to, there's a private space mm. company, uh, Jared Isaacman, who's, a, who's I've become friends with, a great guy. He uh, more or less chartered a uh, SpaceX vehicle to do some orbits around our planet for a few days it didn't go to the space station but did get to space and now his next plan uh his next hope is to go again to space with a different set of people that he would bring along with him and uh they're going to try to do a spacewalk i guess on this next this next mission and then one of the things he wants to do is go to hubble and uh, see what he can do to help there you can reboost it that i think should be pretty straightforward but opening it up and starting to do some repairs or replacements of things, that's eh, a different story. I, I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, it's definitely possible. I don't think there's any reason why they cannot. But that's a much different undertaking. It was. They were very difficult spacewalks. Very complex. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it's going to require a lot of effort, a lot of training, and uh, I, I would think. But you're also going to be creative about it too. We looked at one point when uh, our Hubble mission was canceled. I wasn't on the mission yet, but after the Columbia accident, they canceled the mission to Hubble for quite a while. It was about a year and a half until they got put back on the books. We started looking at it again. I guess it was about after, geez, about a year or so after that mission was canceled. But in the meantime, we started looking at how to do it robotically. And so there was limitations on what we could do, but we had a plan. It was some things we could have attempted. It just ended up being too expensive. So I think that kind of creative thinking... Uh, doing it maybe with different spacesuits or different tools that they would have available to them, uh, I, I think there's, there might be a way to do it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no um, that it can't be done, but that's that's a bit difficult. I'm hopeful they were able to do it. I, I think it's definitely worthwhile, but we'll see. NASA is very protective of that telescope. I can't. At least they were when we were touching it, and uh, you know it's working right now. So the number one rule we had was do no harm, and. Uh, now, if the thing's not working, what the heck? You know, it's not working. But right now, it's working. So uh, they certainly would want to make sure they couldn't harm it. But I hope they, I hope they can do it. I think there are ways to do it. I think they're uh, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. And and I hope we, there is another. I hope there. I do hope there is another mission to service Hubble. You've written about you know, and, that, and that's one I was. That's one I would definitely sign up for. We'll see. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll that see was what my, happens. That was my question. Do you yeah. still have an attachment, like an emotional attachment to Hubble? You know, as as someone who's touched it, worked on it, grappled with it, broken tools, trying to fix it. Yeah, I do. I think it's a. It's a. What I what I really admired, I think the, the telescope itself is a telescope, which is cool, amazing, but really what made it work and what continues to have it work 
of the people that built it and look after it and uh, the scientists, the astronomers that use it. That's, that's kind of what I miss. I mean, that, that more than anything, uh, is what I, is what I miss. And I remember saying that I, I was a first time flyer assigned to be a spacewalker on Hubble. It was the first time they ever did that. And I remember talking to Alan Bean about that, that I felt he was, I'm this, I was the second luckiest space, first time space flyer since Alan Bean. Because Alan on his first mission got to walk on the moon and, and I got to spacewalk on Hubble. And I really felt that way. It was really fortunate, mainly because of the people involved. We were not, yeah, they were great people all over NASA, but, but this team was really special. The way that they were able to, to come up with new ways to service the telescope and keep it going and repair the instruments. We did things we never thought we could do when it came down to that last mission. So I do have, I certainly do have a connection and an affection for the telescope, but I think it's more the team behind it, the the people that are still there. A lot of them have retired now, but a lot of them are still there uh, working it and uh, working on other things too. And then the astronomers, uh, or you know, there's a lot of new ones, but a lot of those folks I work with are still at it as well. And they're great teams of people. So yeah, I do have a connection to it and, I'm always ready to help in any way I can, whether it's in space or on the ground. More likely on the ground now, but but certainly would, would be very happy to help. Mike Massimino, and thanks to the Intrepid Sea, Air and Space Museum in New York for hosting us. I mean, I, I, I know they were really helpful. They were yeah. great. It is a brilliant museum, yeah. and we actually have more from the museum on the shuttle they have. Uh, we'll with a brilliant the next, curator, next few yeah, months really good point. speaker as well. So, so we've so got that to come as well. It's well worth a visit. Mm, very, but wasn't very, Mike good. great? Because he was brilliant, he, really he was relaxed. good last time yeah. uh, on the podcast, and that was quite a few. It was pre-COVID. Mm. It was quite a few years ago. He was good, but not. I didn't was, connect last time. He, he relaxed, yeah. didn't he? I, I thought so. I didn't feel we had a connection last time. No. It was a slightly awkward interview. It was yeah. fine. It was not as good as I would have liked it. This time, I really zinged. Yeah. Uh, he was he was absolutely fantastic. Very relaxed. Very funny as well. Yeah, and he vindicated me. I felt so much better uh, when I told him about John Young. I felt it so much better that it wasn't just me <laughs> that got the poor interview. It was John Young. Um, just tell our dear listener... <laughs> What you said after the do you know, interview. I, do you know, I, I just can't remember now. I just can't remember. I, I do remember it being it, excruciatingly it, it, embarrassing. The situation, the, the atmosphere suddenly went <laughs> awkward. I, I mean, it was something, I think, I think it was when, because obviously when you're doing radio, people don't realise, um, and particularly when you're doing it, as opposed to say a podcast where you could be across the table from somewhere when when you were we were doing it with our radio equipment i'm just saying we're close your arm's length to somebody sometimes your knees are touching we're close so it just suddenly i just looked at him and realized he was just really attractive (laughs) and and i i do have one of those brains where as Richard says to me, please use your inside voice only. You know, don't don't use your inside. Where things that are in my brain just come out without me realising it, which is why I said to him, "You're something along the lines of you're really very attractive." You said he looked like a Greek god. Oh, okay. 
That's what you said. <laughs> it did. Actually, I was thinking Roman because he's obviously Massimino Italian. So I was thinking of those sort of Roman statues because he has got those beautiful sort of almond, big almond eyes, shaped eyes. And um, yeah, okay, I said he did remind me of Greek. So. And yes, it he did, did look awkward. <laughs> it did get suddenly the room couldn't have been very, very small. I, I didn't mean to do yeah. that. But, um, yeah, it tickled the um, press officer who was in the room with us because afterwards I'm pretty sure she said, actually, he does. He does like, he, he, um, yeah, but, I think he was yeah. secretly pleased, though, afterwards because mm. he still posed for a few photos. Yes. Although, Although he did... Was there was a little me, bit of a distance. Not you. <laughs> yes. yes. Sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah. that was, um, yeah. Okay. And Parsons uh, <sighs> has a restraining order. <laughs> yes. Anyway, Mike Massimino, great. He was absolutely brilliant. Lovely insight into Apollo there. Great insight into John Young. And, and the Greek god of the yeah. NASA astronaut corps. And I would love to see Hubble serviced but i don't want anyone to just mess with it i think it's got to be done it's got to be done properly but right now it's working so leave it alone (laughs) so coming next an interview with the uk's science minister on astronauts space debris and the disappointment of virgin orbits failed launch you'll be pleased to hear that sue wasn't present in the room for this interview (laughs) Uh, this is space boffins we're in partnership with the naked scientists (laughs) I have, I have actually interviewed a number of science ministers in the past, particularly in my uh, for one of my former jobs uh, at, at the BBC, and um, I don't think I accosted any of them. Although David Willets, there's always an although. No, there, <laughs> when David Willets was a science minister, he was known as the man with two brains because he was so clever. Whether he really is so clever or that's just compared to a politician, you know, who who knows? But he does seem incredibly nice, incredibly bright. And I brought our son with us because he'd. Um, it, I think it was school holidays, and the only time they could get an interview was during half term and. I think our son was probably about 10 or something and and I couldn't, there was no club I could put him to. I tried a few friends and parents and they were like, oh, they were all on holiday. So I I asked the government and said, is it okay if I bring my child with me? And they said yes. And while I didn't accost him, he couldn't have been nicer to the point where he was actually the opposite of Mike Massimino. Well, similar in that um, he spent his attention was more on the sun than me. I had to sort of drag him away. He showed him a little spacecraft that he had on his desk, one of those tiny little CubeSats. He, he talked to him about space and, uh, yeah, he he was really nice. But, yeah, he kept his distance. I wonder why. <laughs> no, thank you. But anyway, anyway, by the way, you can find us all over the place on social media. Yeah, we need to update that. Yeah, so well, actually, all over forward. the place. Now, there's yeah. another. There's exactly. another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a um, catchphrase we could have we are all, all over, over the place, place. yes it's space more words than one. all over the place all over the place so do get in touch uh, via facebook or twitter all comments thoughts and suggestions gratefully received uh, including how i can use my inside voice just a little bit more we also have this huge archive 10 years worth of podcasts 11 years worth yeah that's oh yes of course mm. i keep forgetting oh, 2023 yeah it is. so actually it's almost yes, it 12 years yeah. worth in yeah. july it would yeah. be 12 that's yeah. amazing that's why i said 11 years at the top of the podcast but it's actually 12 isn't it no it's 11 and a half okay yeah okay yeah 
2011. But yes. it's, it's 2023, Rich. Yes, but it's only the beginning of 2023 minus 2011. Yes, but it'll be the Yes, only if it's the summer, because that's when we started doing them. We did started doing them the summer of, of 2011. 11, yeah. So this, this coming summer will be 12 years. Okay. It's 11 and a half at the moment. Okay. Okay. Anyway, I was talking, <laughs> talking about the archive before yeah. we got into a very... Oh, hey, space boffins, we're all over the place. Here we go. It works. It works for me already. Um, yeah, there's tons of people on there. Space scientists, engineers, loads of astronauts. Um, we've had actually that, that great musician from um, public service We've got a brilliant podcast on public we've service broadcasting. Because we were one poets. of the, Yeah, we were one of the first people to really sort of, well, not discover public service broadcasting, but out there. That's stretching it, Rich. Yeah, but we did, we did we a lot We championed it we right did, away. Absolutely. We were on them, weren't we? Were, we uh, yeah. we and, were on them. And he was great. because he, he was brilliant. Like, I went to his recording studio. Yeah, he was fabulous. Yep. He's got a great crazy name, hasn't he? Like Wild Goose. Um, is it wild goose? It is. Um, isn't it? Wild. Oh otter. no, I can't remember. Will the goose? Will, yeah, will yeah, the badger? Yeah, no, it's, I'm sure it's, it's really bothering me <laughs> now. Will the otter? No, because I've got. I know his proper name. Uh, wild camel. Look, just just carry on. I'll, All right, I'll look and you're going to come back. Yeah. I'm, I put money on it being. Will, it's will goose, I think. Will wild the goose or will the goose or something yeah. like that. Anyway, yeah, so check out the, uh, this is just a very long-winded way, Space Boffins, we're all over the place, of saying, you know, check out that archive. Jay Will Goose great. Esquire. Will Goose, there you go, yeah. not Wild Goose, that's no, just me Goose thinking Esquire. it was Wild Goose, yeah. isn't it? Look, let's carry on. All right, we're supported by the UK Space Agency, which means we can cover more UK space than pretty much other space podcasts, not least because we get some great access, and so... This is a first for Space Boffins, though, because it's the current UK Science Minister, George Freeman. Now, I met him in Parliament in one of the uh, quite grand uh, committee rooms in Portcullis House. Um, Before we hear a conversation, I should say that um, editorially... All the questions are my own. There was no pressure to avoid particular areas, particular questions. So uh, the interview is also largely unedited. So I thought you'd like to hear it as it was. So it's the not whole a conversation. promo. That's what it's we're not saying. a promo yeah. for yeah. the government. This is, you know, what he, this is what I on. asked and what he, what he said. Um, I've just tidied it up a little bit in the edit. Um, we'll talk about launch, the uh, new British astronauts, the UK's participation or not in the European Union's Copernicus Earth Observation Programme saving ESA's mission to Mars and space debris. George Freeman, UK Minister for Science, Research, Technology and Innovation with responsibility for space. You don't want to call yourself the space minister? I'd love to. Titles have to be clear with number 10. And part of my aim as the minister for space sector in in the UK is to get it to a point where it's recognised as a major industry. I was minister for life science, minister for agri-tech, I hope there will be in due course a minister for space because it's such an exciting sector. We'll come on to that. I think we need to start, though, with the sad failure of the first launch from the UK. Well, I mean, it started well. The 747 Cosmic Girl took off, first stage went okay, and then the launch failed. There was so much, or seemed to be so much riding on this. Yes, it was a huge moment, and it was an awful lot going on that night. For the UK, we were, I mean, of course, in the end, the mission was a failure in terms of the launch of the satellites. And I don't want to, you know, pretend otherwise. But, you know, we became the first country in Europe to do space launch. We 
they did get into orbit. Um, wasn't the right orbit, but they got into into space. Uh, we have a spaceport now, the first European regulated spaceport in Europe in Cornwall. Two more coming in Scotland. All of the regulatory work. There was a lot to do. We've established all the regulatory frameworks for launch successfully, and as you say, nine tenths of the operation from Virgin all worked. But of course, um, space is hard, right? And uh, the first ESA missions didn't work. I mean, we've all been here, but we are absolutely committed to commercial payload satellite launch and the LEO market. And we're pretty sure Virgin will be back quite soon. Um, we're now working to make sure we can get some more satellites ready for the next launch. Now, you mentioned when you introduced yourself the, the importance of, of space. Quite a commitment at the Ministerial Council to space. I, I, I've read it's a, a record commitment from, from the UK. Does that mean space is a big priority for, for the government? Yes, it's a huge priority. I was 15 years in tech venture capital before coming to Parliament 12 years ago, and I've led the first life science strategy and then the agri-tech industrial strategy and the transport strategy. Prime Minister's now put me in charge of all of UK science research, tech and innovation. It's a huge uh, budget. It's about 40 billion over this three years. And uh, space is the sector we see uh, at the head of a list of sectors growing fast. It's, um, I mean, we're already in the UK. We have a 16 billion pound sector, 45,000 employees. Uh, I've likened the UK sector to a kind of Formula One pit lane. We've got companies like Astroscale and Surrey Satellites and Immarsat and Reaction Engines and Space Forward. We've got some amazing companies, uh, but we haven't had a prime and we haven't had launch. Uh, I mean, Airbus is here, which is huge, but of course, um, it's, uh, it, it's a Franco-German company with a UK operating arm. It's a huge player in the UK, but our ambition is to grow into a bigger commercial sector. So... Um, Space is a huge growth area for us. Well, over the next 10 years, my, uh, my goal is to turn this increase in our public R&D into 2, 3, 4x private investment from industry. And the space sector is clearly poised to deliver. My job is to get the policy framework right. Uh, and basically that means, you know, ESA, the European Space Agency, we made a big contribution, one point, just short of 1.8 billion. We put more in and we, we got everything we were looking for, 15-odd programs, from deep science, space science, which the UK has always been a big uh, party to, to much nearer commercial projects. But also through the space agency then in the UK, we're putting in another one and a half odd billion, and the MOD are putting in this three years, three billion. So it's about a seven billion commitment over three years. Um, we're doing it because we think this sector is ready. Uh, let's talk about that. You mentioned the science. Um, XMRs was the, the, the big question mark this particular meeting can it be saved it was a joint european russian mission now solely a european mission and it can be saved can it yes it was one of the absolutely key things for me and uh, paul Bate, ceo of the space agency on our list of things that we wanted in esa we really wanted to get the rosalind franklin mission back on track um and i'm really thrilled we've done it is i think it'll be one of those moments where a whole generation is electrified by, uh, you know, uh, the rover on Mars drilling in and giving us a readout of what it finds. I remember, so I was born in 67, I remember an electrifying moment of, of energy in my first two years, which I realized later was the Apollo uh, launch and moon landings. My brothers were seven and eight years older. The family was electrified. The country was electrified. 
I was two, but I felt the kind of surge of electromagnetic emotional energy. And I think another generation will have the same thing when uh, the Rosalind Franklin rover sends back those signals. And the fact that it will have been manufactured here in the UK is a huge moment and a big signal that we're still committed to deep space science as well as the near market satellite launches, the commercial sector, the regulation, the insurance. I mean, that is quite exciting, isn't it? Because we've seen the, the buzz internationally around the NASA Mars missions, most recently Curiosity Perseverance. Mm-hmm. So you, you're anticipating a similar thing with, with this British built, we've seen it being built in the, in the clean room it? in Stevenage, yeah. yeah. And the same this, with this British built rover. It's a really important project for us for several reasons. Partly, space is the big frontier, and so many of the clues to the creation of our planet, its sustainability, the solar system, solar flares, climate change, so much of that deep science is deeply relevant to our planet. Uh, but also, it's deep in the, humor, in, in, in the core DNA of humanity to quest, to discover, to explore. And the deep oceans uh, and deep space, but particularly deep space, it captures... I think a defining element of humanity, whether you're Chinese, Russian, American, or wherever you are in the world, it touches the very essence of being human. And I think that's really important. Uh, it unites the world. And you know, the space station circulating the planet with scientists, researchers from all around the world is an inspiring thing. So we're deeply committed to that. But to help pay for it and to help uh, grow our economy, we're really committed to the commercial aspect. Uh, this is a win-win, I think. Now, the other area that the UK is, uh, has been very good at is, is Earth observation over the years and, and climate science, uh, weather, all those sorts of areas. The UK was part of Copernicus, the EU Earth observation program. It was also part of Galileo. The UK is out of that, the navigation program. Where are we at with, mm. with Copernicus and UK involvement in essentially an, a European Union mission that's provided by the European Space Agency. It's a, little, it's a little bit complex, isn't it? Yeah, look, I know you've got listeners all around the world who won't be following the minutiae of uh, Anglo-European um, Brexit politics. So uh, when we negotiated to leave the European Political and Monetary Union, uh, single currency, single flag, single uh, integrated Europe, we specifically negotiated not to leave the science, the research, uh, all these other programs. We're proud to be members of the European Community of Nations We just wanted to be outside the political union. That was two years ago. Our association to those three programs, Horizon, Copernicus and Euratom, has been blocked because of high politics to do with Northern Ireland and the EU, which is a shame. Science sort of being weaponized. Um, But um, on those three, I have been uh, very clear that the money we would have put in to the European programs is ring-fenced. And we've spent this last year urging the European Union to allow us back in and we've got huge support every European member state wants us in every every everyone I speak to uh, it's just politics and so we've committed earth observation is a hugely important sector we've made a big commitment about 450 million over this three years to earth observation we committed to those programs through ESA uh, we may not we're not in Copernicus but ESA still has relevant programs so we pile in on those and we're putting 150 odd million through the space agency. It's an absolutely key platform for us. And just on the others, on uh, Euratom, we're in a similar place. Uh, we've deployed the money, and um, we're looking for international partners as we industrialise fusion. And on the big horizon budget, that's uh, 
14 odd 15 billion into the European research program over eight years we're blocked and I've made very clear look if we can't play in the European Cup of Science we'll play in the World Cup and so we're going to deploy those budgets in all sorts of ways around the world so we are absolutely determined to continue the tradition of Great Britain as a as a force for international science. But you wouldn't, if these can get, as you say, block, unblocked, could, could the UK become a, a part of the Horizon programme and, uh, and the Copernicus programme? Yeah. Like you say, without getting into the Northern Ireland politics of all this, because there's yes. a lot going on right Yeah, now. I've been really clear. We're not slamming the door. We're not pulling the phone out. That really dates me, doesn't it? The days <laughs> when phones had wires, right? Um, we're leaving the door open, signalling loud to Europe. Look, we really want to come in, but I can't allow world-class researchers to be benched and watch others playing on the field. Um, and so, ideally, I hope that as we move to deploy and show that we're not going to hang around, I hope Europe will pick up the phone. But either way, we are absolutely committed to make sure that the great tradition of Earth observation science in the UK will not suffer. And uh, there's a huge international market from Canada to Australia, all around the world. People really respect our science and our research and our industry. So uh, we're determined to support it. Let's talk about astronauts now. In fact, let, let me just throw in here, and I've mentioned this several times on the podcast. When I first started covering space in the UK, whether this was for the BBC or whether it was uh, for Lat uh, the British National Space Centre, what became the UK Space Agency, I edited the magazine called Space UK. It was very clear to me when I started editing this magazine that there were to be no mention of astronauts and certainly no mention of rockets. And now we're talking about both, and yep. with the minister. So potentially three astronauts from this latest selection. One will yep. almost definitely become an astronaut, Rosemary. Uh, John McFall, uh, para-astronaut, or however they're going to call that. And then um, and Megan, Megan uh, Christian as, as yep. uh, you know, one of the, the next sort of stage down. So, I mean, that's, that's incredible, isn't it? It is, and I, I'm, I think it's a great moment for the UK. Again, this was something I went to the European Space Agency Council of Ministers uh, with the agency. It was absolute red line for us. And that's why we put a bit more money in. We were on the front foot supporting the European Space Agency. It's not the EU. It, it involves international partners, and we wanted to signal our continued commitment. Uh, Tim Peake has been the most fantastic ambassador for this sector and for the whole space field and space science. I first met him when I was Minister for Life Science, and I didn't realise, but in that Principia mission, he was um, the human body at the heart of 23 experiments. And he told me that astronauts lose their eyesight, macular degeneration, it repairs when you come back. Pretty interesting to know why. Similarly, bone density. I think astronauts lose bone density and then gain it when they get back. This is phenomenal insight into mechanisms. So uh, he's been a brilliant ambassador, but I think we need to inspire another generation. And it's just wonderful that we've got Rosemary as our lead astronaut. She will go to space. You know, that's very exciting. And John McFall flying the flag for disability in space. I mean, he's a remarkable young man. And to hear him speak about how space is the ultimate frontier, everything you do in space, you have to do better, cheaper, quicker, faster, with less energy, with less... Everything is... It's a testbed, an ultimate testbed of technology. Well, his point is it's also an ultimate testbed of humanity. And it's very inspiring. We've been a great leader in disability rights. So the fact that we have the first disabled astronaut is hugely exciting 
They are all scarily brilliant, aren't they? they? Are. Yeah, they're, they're the people you, you, you hope weren't your brother or sister when you were a child at school. They're just they're winners at everything they do. It's really interesting, actually, with talking about disabilities in space. I interviewed uh, Luca Parmitano, Italian astronaut, and he said when he was in space, actually, his legs were just useless. He would have really liked to have had four arms. That would be the best thing. Yeah, um, he's also another uh, at the ESA Council, you know, that these incredible astronauts sort of in their blue suits sort of scattered around, uh, and they're pretty humbling. I mean, these are, uh, you know, they're very, very phenomenal human beings, <laughs> athletes, scientists, engineers, all in one. And I think they're, um, it's just wonderful that another generation will have a chance to step in their shoes. And potentially a UK flag on the moon. Yeah. I know all the focus has been on Mars and on the deep science, but we do think the moon is, in this next phase, is going to become a really important sort of base station for exploration. And uh, actually, you know, lunar science and lunar technology and thinking of the moon as a launching off point for so many other operations is, is a really exciting sector in itself. And as I said earlier, you know, these are... Very conscious here, there's a cost of living crisis, we're all paying the price for the pandemic, for the war in Ukraine, uh, energy costs, you know, people are really struggling. And I, as Minister for Space, feel a, a very strong responsibility to justify this money. And if people felt that it was all kind of, uh, you know, playboys doing space tourism, and um, if that was all it was about, I think there'd be quite a lot of concern that this is a bad use of money. But when you explain to people what we're doing, and that Space is the ultimate testbed laboratory. It's in space that we're defining new models of fuels, new models of recycling material science, of um, oxygen, of all of the kind of those technologies that are absolutely crucial to net zero, crucial to delivering more from less, to understanding nutrition and agri-tech and how you grow. All of that, it's an ultimate laboratory, people understand. And then they're inspired by the deep science and excited by the technology. And, you know, in the UK, the space economy isn't all in Cambridge or London. Spaceport, Cornwall, uh, Surrey, satellites, Stevenage, um, South Wales, Space Forged, Glasgow Manufacturing, Scotland launched. This is an economy that's creating jobs all around the UK in areas that have felt a bit left behind. So I think it's a brilliant sector. Now, none of this... Would be po- is going to be possible if we can't sort out the mess of what's going on in orbit at the moment with with space debris, the increasing problem of space debris. The pre- I mean, you know, you have to launching a satellite, you have to navigate through these yeah. bands around. If you're starting to send, you've got astronauts on the space station, you're sending astronauts to the moon. Increasing concern, and again, this is something that you know, even if you look at this objectively, uh, the UK is taking a, a lead on. Of trying to do this how do you do it though without international agreement because that's the that's the problem here isn't it there's no one it's just free for all isn't it yeah i think we've we've seen a bit of a um a sort of wild west in space and no one's been thinking too much about sustainability it's been all about uh military and then geopolitical sovereignty we are absolutely determined to make sure that the world doesn't repeat the mistakes we made in other sectors in space and that we should, you know, leave no trace. Um, If you're putting a satellite up there, you need to be able to demonstrate that you can manage it up there, maintain it up there, service it up there, refuel it, charge it up there and get it back. We cannot go on 
littering space with debris for the reasons you've just said. Firstly, um, it creates hugely dangerous, damaging and expensive clutter. So we're undermining the whole commercial economy. Secondly, if we're going to treat space as the new frontier for investigating planetary sustainability, we better practice what we preach as we go there. And thirdly, in order to really understand how to develop more sustainable models on Earth, we need to use space as the testbed for all of that. So for all those reasons, as well as the moral reason that we just um, we need to be the responsible global citizens, we are determined to use... Um, look, we're a small country, but I think the British flag all around the world, the Union Jack, represents standards. Um, we are a great regulator. We set the international maritime standards. We do insurance standards. We do... All around the world, people look to the UK as a place that sets standards. So I've made very clear that we are going to use our Brexit freedoms. So this is an area where we've got regulatory freedom. And what I want to do is, and I announced this last summer, we're going to use that freedom to create in the UK a regulatory framework for small commercial satellite uh, launch companies that makes the UK a really attractive place. If you're compliant with a very basic set of just best practice we're going to start small, work with industry, set out some basic metrics that everyone would say, well, that's good practice, not just chucking junk up and leaving it. Then we'll help you with quicker licensing, cheaper insurance, easier access to finance. I think there's an opportunity for the UK to convene with other countries like Canada and Switzerland and Norway and Japan and Australia, who've all got good space economies, but they're not part of the kind of Russia, China, America block. Uh, a sort of space safe space club, a clean space club, and just begin to set some international standards so that we change the assumption about this sector. And I think industry want it. They want to know the rules. Uh, and as this commercial sector takes off, I think, uh, you know, as long as we're on the front foot setting the standards, I think we'll find um, the industry will come with us. As long as it isn't some sort of dramatic cliff edge that if you're not compliant with some arbitrary set of you know, metrics within 12 months, you'll be banned. It's not about that. It's about setting the standards so that, yeah, just as when the first cars drove up and down, there wasn't an MOT. But quite quickly, people worked out it'd be quite good to have an MOT. Uh, I think we'll be in a similar situation with space, and it'll be, is your satellite retrievable? Is it serviceable? Can you get it back? Can you get it out of orbit if it's, uh, you know, so it doesn't, become an interference but also space traffic control we're going to have to have a system where all these satellites can be properly controlled so this is a growing industry as well as a i think a moral mission you're not going to get russia on board for obvious reasons but what about china here because they're the you know a growing space power can you get them on board with some sort of international regulation i mean they they are forming creating space debris yeah, look, I, I'm, uh, I think in the end, um, uh, we'll see where this whole tension, geopolitical tension, the sort of the global race between China and the West, really, which is what we're seeing, how it plays out. I mean, there are, there are doom, doomsters who say, you know, this is the new Cold War and it's going to get hot and it's defining and uh, we've been asleep at the wheel in the West and we've... Um, uh, there are others who say, look, in the end, China is coming out of a period of um, geopolitical kind of ins uh, insularity. It's becoming a major global player. And we will all 
work, have to work with China and China will change and it will adopt. And in 50 years, people will say, God, I, do you remember when they were the sort of big, dangerous um, player? And I, you know, I think the truth is probably there's a bit of both. We have to be quite tough about some rules, um, but equally quite open-eyed about the fact that a major culture, civilization and country is coming out into the world and wants to do science and technology and innovation. And in the end, as one planet, one humanity, we're going to have to work together. And I think science is a force for good in that. I mean, there's a high geopolitical tensions, obviously, but as science minister, I think my job is to do everything I can to nurture a sort of common shared global commitment to scientia, to science and technology done within decent rules. And so will you, for example, talk to your, your Chinese counterparts or, or try and build bridges with the you know, people in the countries that are not cooperating at the moment? Well, China's the hard one. Right now we're, not, we're in a very difficult situation. Um, we're above my pay grade, uh, but, I mean, you only have to read the papers, right? So I'm starting with natural allies, um, countries who have a very strong interest, like us in the commercial space sector, are really worried about debris, want to make a difference, and I think if the countries I've listed uh, and one or two others get together and we agree some basic standards and we uh, insist that everyone should abide by them and we integrate our insurance markets, I think we'll see that the commercial space sector, as opposed to the uh, sort of sovereign military space sector, the commercial sector will want rules. And consumers want rules. Uh, investors want rules. Uh, and I think actually good regulation is good for innovation. Just finally, you, you must be pretty excited about the next few years in space. Um, just, you know, having been a part of this now, whether you're in government or not in government yeah, in yeah. two, five, ten years' time, there's quite a lot to look forward to. And, and do you think people are getting that the UK does space now? Because you used to hear this sort of, you know, mm. oh, the UK doesn't really do space, or NASA does space, UK doesn't do space. Mm. Uh, do you feel quite positive about that? I feel incredibly positive and very privileged to be uh, the minister with responsibility for space. And I think, in some ways, part of my job as a as a politician, yes, it's, it's the regulatory piece and the policy framework, but it's also to tell the story. And I think, um, you know, inspire people, not in a daft way. I mean, I think children are naturally inspired by space. It's a very inspiring thing. I think what people really need to know here is that this is key to their everyday lives, that when they pick up their phone, turn on their telly, drive their car, take a flight or a, you know, most of the communication systems controlling them are controlled through space. When they stargaze at night and see satellites, um, most of them aren't spying on them. They're commercial satellites, right? You know, and I think people are beginning to realize this is not some sort of um, just sort of remote distant, esoteric playground is absolute line one of today's economy, creating jobs all around the country. And I think that is key in this country at the moment. People are concerned about cost of living and recession. Um, but I, I have an incredibly privileged job, right? I get to see stuff you see. It's incredibly exciting. And I do think, you know, Britain, we have an opportunity as we emerge from a pretty terrible decade, right? A cr um, financial crash, austerity, terrible Brexit referendum, two MPs murdered, political logjam, prime ministers resigning, a pandemic and a war. I think we're, we're on the cusp now of a, a golden era in which people look back and say the UK then became 
again what we used to be in the 50s and 60s, a science and technology engineering powerhouse helping to export the technologies around the world for sustainable development in the oceans, in space, driving a common framework of science for global good, attracting billions of inward investment and making people proud of Britain, a small country but with a big impact and no sector better embodies that than space. So I'm, I think it's incredibly exciting. Next year I hope to go down to the British Antarctic Survey, who I'm responsible for. Uh, I'm not, I just want to announce, I'm not intending to go into space, but I, I do I think it's an incredibly exciting sector and when the, when the Rosalind Franklin rover starts drilling into the surface of Mars, I think a whole generation are going to be electrified again. Nice list there of all the horrors of the last 10 um, years. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, we both started giggling then because it's only when you hear it all lists <laughs> sort of the thing out. It's pretty bad. Yeah. And what, what I found interesting as well is, you know, he talked about all the different prime ministers and the resignations and what have you. I thought it was, it was interesting that when he resigned in July 2022, as life sciences minister, one of many MPs who resigned, which sort of toppled or or forced Boris Johnson's hand effectively, um, the Science Media Centre put out uh, a sort of, you know, a, a scientist comments. And so uh, quite a few of them were all really sorry to, to see him resign because they saw him as a good minister for you know, for, for, for life sciences. So um, he's, I suspect, uh, a lot of science people were, and space were quite pleased to see him promoted or not, or pr- not necessarily promoted, but come back as science minister with responsibility for, for space because he does seem to, as we've heard, understand the issues incredibly well, knows what's uh, from the business side and the economy side, the value of space, but also, he, I mean, you can't fake enthusiasm. I don't think anyway. I think you could normally tell the people. Oh no, he was the people who he, are faking it. Usually yeah. say, "I'm really excited yes. and go a bit too over the top." Yeah, you no, know, no, no. It he comes was, through normally. He was gen- very. I mean, you could tell very personable. Yeah. Um, Impressive knowledge. Obviously, he'd read his, his briefs, yeah. but the fact that he was across all this—not <laughs> all politicians, no, as we well, know—do uh, we know, read their do briefs. Not read it. Yeah. You know, but he was across this. He understood yes. the sector yeah. and was—you can clearly hear—very enthusiastic. He was very keen to be on a podcast, which I thought, yes, yeah, which is which is which, fabulous, which is great. You know, so um, I also thought the China stuff was quite interesting. Obviously, you recorded this shortly uh, before. <laughs> Yes, there, the, was no, there were uh, no there balloons. There weren't any at that balloons, point. Or spy no. balloons, no. or what have you ever. Uh, China. So uh, um, I wonder if his, his opinion has changed, or whether he's still optimistic. And it's a value, you know, a valid point to say, you know, that today's air quote enemy, or you know, sort of. Uh, is is tomorrow's friend effectively you never quite know which way and it all it takes is an election to change or or a referendum <laughs> like brexit to change the political landscape and it's interesting to note that he was a remainer you know he did want to stay in europe he was one of those he enemies. did he wrote quite a lot about about that before the um the brexit vote uh, i do quite like there's a couple of nice nice phrases in that um I like the electromagnetic emotional energy, which I thought was really nice, really nice turn of phrase uh, there. Uh, but also, the, I like this idea of this clean space club, you know, so a group of nations that gets together and says, right, we're not going to tolerate 
more debris, mm. we're going to do something about it. Because, frankly, if, if someone doesn't start taking the initiative and do something about it, we're just going to carry on as we are. And which, also with Starlink know, now, there are so many more potential um, pieces of debris as well, because all it takes is one for one not to uh, work and uh, maybe go into the wrong orbit or or what have you. So yeah, it's 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 a valid point. It is, yeah. So no, it was all, it was all good. I enjoyed the interview very much, and um, hope you did listening to it as well. Uh, that is uh, Space Boffins. We're we're kindly supported by the UK Space Agency. <laughs> and we'll be back next month or maybe later this month or maybe in six weeks time because yeah, we're going to try and we're do it space boffins and we're all over the place yes, and we, we stretch the uh, meaning of a monthly yeah. podcast and you're off to see the orion the service module i am i'm popping to bremen in germany to see yeah to see the esm the european service module which is the crucial part of the artemis missions in order to get the Orion spacecraft around the moon to the moon on the moon. So, uh, and you'll yeah. get to see them being built. I will, yeah. So I'm, I'm so not sure which number cool, this one it? will be. Cool. Um, it might be three because they've mm. already delivered one and two. I think. I think yeah. three. So this, you know, who knows uh, which number it is? But yes, that will be great to see. I will be getting quite a few interviews while I'm there. A lot of them for a series that you and I are about to uh, do a written series for should we say who it's for? Yeah, for BBC for Future. BBC Future. Um, but yeah, hopefully um, some of those interviews we'll do for the podcast as well. Yeah. Yay. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to mention, um, I had an email from ESA. There's a new ESA logo or rather there isn't. All they've done is a new ESA patch. And I mean, this is to celebrate. Mm. Slovakia is now an associate member mm-hmm. of ESA. So ESA's grown now. So yeah. it's a new patch with the Slovakian flag, which is all very nice. Great. Can I just say, though? Are we not going to rant about the ESA bit again, yeah, are you? It, you know, there's such an opportunity to, you know, NASA have embraced the old worm now. We see the nice worm logo on there. Oh, I think it was on Orion, wasn't it? The worm logo. Um, you certainly see it on um, a lot of the, the NASA missions now, which I think is fantastic. ESA, it's got two E's in it, but it has its E-ESA. Because ditch one of the ESA. ESA, yeah. Yeah, it, yes. The, look it, at the ESA logo. It makes no an sense. E. You think they yeah. should remove there's an a, there E? There's an extraneous E in the ESA okay. logo. Okay, they do do some cool um, sort of patch and oh, logo things. Yeah, they I've do got great their, artwork. One of their Jupiter shirts. I've got a Solar Orbiter t-shirt. I mean, I bought a lot of the projects. But the, <laughs> yes, the, the, the bought ESA, the t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, but the basic logo it's needs some work. ESA. Yeah, yeah. I lo- I mean, I like the E. I I agree with you. It should just be E S. A, a and not have an extra E E Now now we've said that, take a look and you'll see what we mean because you'll probably just think, what on earth are they going have on a look about? At the it ESA doesn't logo, say E E. And there are too ESA, many E's. But there is an extra too many E's, e, E's in ESA. Extra e. Yeah. Anyway, rant over. <laughs> Space E Space Boffins. E. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening. Verliert ihr Team Zeit? Schaffen Sie Übersicht über alle Arbeitsabläufe mit Asana. Jetzt kostenlos testen auf asana.com.